Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Penny Liao, who started as an RFF fellow as of August 1st, 2021, so the week in which we are recording. Uh, Penny most recently finished up a postdoctoral fellowship at the Wharton Risk Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and before that, she received her PhD in economics at the University of California, San Diego in 2019. Penny's primary research interests are in behavioral and market responses to extreme weather events and environmental risks, and how policies can be designed to facilitate efficient adaptation. My conversation with Penny is the first in a pair of episodes designed to introduce our wonderful listening audience to RFF's newest wonderful researchers. So it's a bit of a departure from our previous episode content. Recognize that we typically focus on a topic far more than on an individual. But today, in the spirit of welcoming Penny to the RFF family, I'd like to add in a few extra, quote, get to know you questions, even as we discuss Penny's research on flood insurance and home equity. Call it host prerogative. Stay with us. Penny, welcome to Resources Radio, and welcome to Resources for the Future. It's very nice to have you. Thank you. Uh, So this month marks the beginning of your official tenure at RFF, and we're really pleased to have you in the family. So can you tell our listeners just a little bit about the path that brought you to this point? Yeah, so thank you, Kristen, for having me. I'm very happy to be part of RFF and to be talking to you today. So I actually started this path to be an environmental economist uh, by chance. I was an undergrad in uh, economics uh, at the University of Hong Kong, and nobody in my university studies environmental economics, like the field does not exist there. But I happened to know an environmental economist teaching at another university in Hong Kong. Uh, and his professor, Bill Barron, and he was incredibly passionate about the field. So as soon as he learned that I'm an undergrad in econ, he immediately recommended two papers for me to read. And those are Tragedy of the Commons by Garrett Hardin and The Problem of Social Cause by Ronald Coase. And these papers blew my mind. They're such seminal papers in the field, and they laid out very profound and powerful ideas in a very accessible way that me as a second year undergrad could understand. Um, And I remember being so fascinated by the idea that you can apply an economic lens to environmental problems. And that appeals to me a lot because growing up in China, I've seen this tension between economic development and environmental quality. And environmental econ seems to hold this potential in confronting this tension and finding a path forward. So this fascination has stuck with me ever since, and I started working for an environmental and urban policy think tank uh, in Hong Kong called Civic Exchange. And then I went to UCSD to pursue a PhD in economics uh, specializing in environmental. Uh, When I completed my PhD, I was already working on climate and disaster impacts. Uh, I then joined the Wharton Risk Center as a postdoc, and there the Risk Center deals a lot with questions of risk and how people make decisions under risk and how risk gets diversified and things like that. And that's when I started thinking about disaster risk management and adaptation more systematically. So interesting. I I love the beginning of that anecdote as much as 
for the fact that it reminds me of, of how much a difference an individual professor or an, it, just an individual passionate person of any variety can really make a difference in someone's trajectory. But, but that's great. And it sounds like you really kind of blazed your own path a little bit in terms of following your passions and bringing things together in a way that wasn't super common. I think I was, I was definitely very lucky to have such good mentors along the way. Um, and I think that during your formative years, running into these people really helps. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's that's wonderful and more than I knew. So I'm very pleased to know that myself. So let's talk about adaptation for just just a second. And and research, I, I would suggest that research on adaptation measures seems to be of increasing importance, um, you know, given the visibility of extreme weather events and unfortunately, are relative in action on mitigation as well. So, you know, you said a little bit about this, but can you say a little bit more about why you chose to focus on disasters, risks, adaptation? Why did that really capture your imagination? Right. So, first of all, I think even without climate change, disaster risk is a very important and interesting topic to me. Uh, There are catastrophic events throughout human history that have destroyed lives and livelihood of so many people. And we now have advanced statistical knowledge and modeling techniques. And we know that we can see this as a risk management problem. So from a public policy point of view, I think it's an important question of how do we build a robust system to have the risk reflected and to diversify the risk and to protect uh, vulnerable populations uh, from the realizations of the risk. Um, And then on top of that, we have climate change, which makes things much worse. And I think you spell it out really well in your question that the relative inaction in mitigation makes adaptation more important. And that's also the realization I've uh, come to during grad school. And I think that there's a lot of room for improvement when it comes to adaptation. Uh, This summer, we're seeing this record number of extreme weather events and disasters across the world. And it seems clear that the infrastructure in many places are not really well defined to handle such events. So I think there are a lot of opportunities right now for governments to take note and be more prepared for unexpected events like this. And it's not just the governments, individuals and businesses and other entities can also take actions to be prepared. And there are a lot of open questions remaining about whether we have the right incentive structure in place for them to take the necessary adaptation measures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I like that focus on, you know, certainly... I think at RFF we focus on policy, and the, and the policy levers are incredibly important. But you're right to point out that um, adaptation is going to happen across an, a wide range of jurisdictions, including everything from the homeowner to the insurance company to the local government, state government, all the way up to the federal government. So, um, so the range of questions and the range of players is very wide, and it makes sense that there'd be just a lot that we still need to figure out. <laughs> so. Yeah, certainly. I mean, even for individuals and businesses what the current policy is also affects their choices. And so that's really important. Mm-hmm. 
All right, well, let me ask you one more introductory question, and I do want to spend a, kind of the bulk of our time talking about some of your recent research, but but I, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned early on that you attended university, your undergraduate education in Hong Kong before coming to the U.S., and that you grew up in China. So maybe can I just ask for a sort of a global perspective, too, and how you see the conversation around mitigation and perhaps adaptation in particular being different in a place like Hong Kong compared to the U.S.? Are there sort of, are there different policy levers available? What are how does the conversation look? Right. So there are certainly differences and similarities. Um, so first of all, in Hong Kong, climate change is not a politically charged issue. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so sad, but yes. <laughs> so I think the general public might not consider it the number one issue and compared to the economy, for example. But they do overwhelmingly support mitigating carbon emissions within Hong Kong. Um, And in terms of adaptation, Hong Kong is a predominantly urban environment. Uh, At least most people live in an urban environment uh, and they have exposure to extreme heat and tropical cyclones. So the infrastructure there has more or less been adapted to such events and there are management practices uh, trying to um, adapt to these risks. But going forward, it's unclear whether the existing infrastructure is going to hold up in more extreme scenarios of heat and uh, things like storm surge coming from sea level rise. Um, And I think that is actually universal, I guess, uh, to a lot of other places as well, facing that uncertainty. Um, It also has a pretty high level of inequality in the society. And so I'm not sure I have seen enough discussion there about what this means in terms of exposure to climate impacts by different groups. And I think that the equity concern is true both in Hong Kong and in the US. So yeah, so I think that there are definitely differences, but also a lot of similarities. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for that context and that that sort of trans-Pacific perspective there. So, all right. So you're wrapping up some work on flood insurance and home equity. And you and your authors look at, and I'm going to quote here for a second, um, how, quote, mortgage default may be a form of implicit insurance against disaster risk for leveraged households. Can you explain that hypothesis a little bit more? Just kind of ground us in what you're looking at? Yes, definitely. Um, Yeah, so this paper is with Philip Mulder, who's a graduate student at Wharton. Um, And in this paper, um, we're interested in looking at flood insurance, but let me first give you some context. So flooding is a very expensive type of disaster, both in aggregate and for individual homeowners. Uh, In aggregate, it costs about $15 billion annually in the past decade. Um, For individuals, when their home is flooded, the damage can easily be tens of thousands of dollars. For example, in 2019, the average flood insurance claim is at $52,000. And in 2017, when there's uh, particularly severe hurricanes, uh, the average claim goes to more than $90,000. Wow. And is that just in the U.S.? Can I just make sure I'm That's clear just on? in the U.S., yes. The, these are flood insurance claims in the U.S. So they're very high numbers for a normal household if they don't have insurance. So in the past, we see that flooding leads to higher rates of mortgage default and foreclosures. What that means is that some homeowners, instead of paying to repair the house out of pocket, 
they would rather default from their mortgage and give up their home equity. Now, this can be a rational choice when the homeowner has a low level of home equity, but high flood damage. So in this case, we can think of mortgage default as a kind of high deductible insurance policy. Hmm, interesting. So the deductible is the home equity, but that's all the homeowner is going to lose when the flood damage goes beyond that. Hmm. Okay. So that's what you're looking at is sort of that ratio between levels of home equity and sort of how much people are willing to default on that in the case of significant damage. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. And so when you mentioned that, you know, the level of uh, equity matters, uh, that's exactly the key here. So if you have a lot of home equity, then you wouldn't want to default in any case. So you cannot rely on this implicit insurance and you would be better off buying formal flood insurance. So the main prediction here is that the more home equity you have, the more you're willing to pay for flood insurance. Interesting. And so it's. I, I hope we can talk about this a little bit further, but it sounds like there may be some, some questions around inequality baked into this research as well. So hopefully we can talk about that. But another kind of grounding question. So you took advantage of some previous fluctuations in housing market prices to kind of tease out this relationship between home equity and insurance uptake. And can you explain just a little bit more about that, about the data sources that you used, kind of how you found a moment in time when you felt like you'd be able to look at this question robustly? Right. Yeah. So as I've mentioned, the main empirical relationship we want to test for is that higher home equity increases flood insurance demand. And so for flood insurance data, the main source we use comes from the National Flood Insurance Program or the NFIP. So this is a public program operated by FEMA and it provides around 95% of all flood insurance in the U.S. So we're capturing the vast majority of the market, because historically, uh, private insurance companies are not willing to provide flood insurance coverage. Um, FEMA has published uh, policy level data in its open FEMA website. So it's a great data source for researchers who are interested in studying flood insurance, and that's the data we use. Uh, we collect a number of other data to supplement it uh, as controls and uh, to do additional exercises, but I'm not going to go into detail here. Now, the most tricky thing in this research is actually a challenge in the research design because home equity is correlated with other important factors in flood insurance demand, such as income, education, or risk attitudes. Um, and so if we directly look at what's the relationship between home equity and flood insurance demand, uh, it's going to capture some of these correlations. And so we're not going to be able to identify the causal relationship. In order to do that, we need something that drives home equity, but not these other things. And so for that, we use sudden changes in housing prices during housing boom and bust in the early 2000s. So around this time, we observe that there are sudden price acceleration in some housing markets, but not others. So in these housing markets, the price first grows smoothly. And then around uh, between 2003 to 2005, there is a sudden acceleration where the price suddenly start growing much faster. 
And this variation has been studied in the housing literature, and that's also where our inspiration comes from. Uh, that the housing literature uh, has shown that this variation is likely to be speculative, and it's independent from fundamental changes in economic and demographic conditions. And this drives large changes in home equity for many homeowners, but it does not change, for example, their underlying flood risk or the expected cause of flooding for them because they're living in the same buildings as before. So this gives us a good opportunity to identify the causal effect of home equity on flood insurance demand while holding these other factors constant. Right. Okay. And also, as you said, holding, you know, their kind of baseline levels of education, um, you know, levels of income, it's over a short enough period that those things are actually held relatively constant as well. Is that Yes. A, yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. So um, okay. it has been shown that in those markets with like a higher housing boom, uh, it's not correlated with, for example, how education level is evolving. Uh, and then Income also, we have control for income in our regressions, and so we're holding those constant as well. Right. Okay. One last question about the kind of stage setting here is, um, were you focused on a particular geographic region, or were you looking at this uh, across a fairly widespread of, of U.S. households? Yeah, so we are basically looking at all the MSAs across the entire United States. Okay. All right. Well, all right. So um, I feel like I always tease our listeners with all of my introductory questions, but let's definitely now talk about, let's hear about the findings. So what relationships did you discover? And, and maybe, you know, how do you and your, and your co-authors explain what you found? Yeah, definitely. So the first thing we see is that flood insurance take up indeed increases more in high boom markets when compared to low boom markets. Um, but more importantly, we're able to estimate how flood insurance take-up changes over time in response to that shock uh, and trace it out over time. And so when we look at this trajectory, we find that the trajectory of insurance take-up lines up really well with the trajectory of housing prices in response to the same shock. And so this suggests strongly to us that there is a direct relationship between the two. And so we're able to estimate directly uh, this relationship. And we find that a 1% increase in housing prices leads to a 0.3% increase in flood insurance demand. To put this in context, this is twice the effect of a 1% drop in insurance premium. So that's a primary factor in insurance demand. And so this suggests that it's quite a substantial relationship. Um, we also find other patterns that are very telling. For example, in the NFIP, households that live in 100-year floodplains, they are mandated to buy flood insurance if they have like a federally backed mortgage. Um, but outside of the 100-year floodplains, there's no mandate whatsoever. And so the decision is completely voluntary. We find that the effect is largely driven by those households living outside of the 100-year floodplains. So we're capturing this conscious decision uh, that are voluntary. We're also looking at uh, the group of homes that got built during the housing boom. So these houses are built between 2003 to 2005 and transacted around the same time. And then when the housing bust started, their prices started dropping 
and they still have a pretty large outstanding mortgage. And so these houses are likely to have pretty low levels of home equity and even negative home equity. And we find a particularly large effect of these policies being dropped during the bust. And so that also strongly points to home equity being, you know, the causal factor here. Now, to further establish that this is really driven by mortgage default mechanism, uh, we look at how things are different across the MSAs with different foreclosure costs. And here by foreclosure cost, I mean things like how soon I will be evicted from the house and would I be charged a large fee by the lender. And this could vary across states based on their foreclosure laws. So some states require all the foreclosures to go to court. And these are called judicial requirement. And, and when there is judicial requirement, it protects the borrower's interest. And we find that indeed in these places, the relationship between home equity and insurance demand is much stronger than the places without the judicial requirement. So that also supports um, the mechanism. And then we also test a number of other auxiliary predictions uh, and rule out some alternative mechanisms. Um, I'm happy to go over them, but I'm not sure we have time. <laughs> I think we're doing okay. If there's another one or two that you want to highlight, um, yeah, it sounds like you guys really mined this information. So feel free to, to share a few more. Yeah, definitely. So one important alternative mechanism we looked into is a liquidity mechanism. Uh, in this mechanism, uh, home equity can also drive flood insurance demand in the sense that if you have more home equity, maybe you're better able to borrow and that allows you to better afford to pay the flood insurance premium. Um, and in order to test that, um, we look at the insurance renewal rate and we focus on the one year renewal rate because one year is a short enough time frame that the households are not going to think that they learn something about their local flood risk. And insurance renewal rate has been shown in the literature to be strongly driven by liquidity conditions. So if this is really a liquidity mechanism, we would expect that the one year renewal rate to go up by a lot because liquidity condition is improving. But when we look into the data, we did not see that at all. And so that helped rule out, you know, that this is actually driven by liquidity, improving liquidity condition from um, higher home equity. Right. Okay. So again, you know, it sounds like, yeah, you did a tremendous amount of sort of digging around with the information you had. And thank you for sharing those findings. And so maybe just to sort of bring it back to the, the higher level too, how do you see what you learned affecting future decision-making in maybe in other words, what would you want, you know, policymakers, other decision-makers to take away from what you've done as they're either designing future flood insurance programs or thinking about how to better protect homeowners or, you know, landscapes in, in the future? Yeah. So that's a very good question. Um, the first implication coming out from the findings is that homeowners with a highly leveraged mortgage, they do not fully internalize their flood risk. Instead, um, part of the risk is transferred to the lenders. Um, but ultimately, a lot of these loans are securitized by the government-sponsored enterprises, the GSEs, such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 
so taxpayer dollars are on the line. And this is an implicit cross-subsidy to homeowners exposed to flood risk. It then leads to the second implication, which is that the implicit subsidy here can distort incentive by these homeowners to insure, which we have shown in the paper. And it would similarly affect their incentive to take adaptation measures, such as flood proofing their homes. So we think that um, possible solutions to address this problem of incentive is to focus on reflecting the risk in the mortgage system, especially for homes outside of the 100-year floodplains, as we find that that's where the effect is. The GSEs, for example, could consider pricing the risk they have taken on, such as charging a higher fee to securitize at-risk loans without insurance coverage. Alternatively, it's worth considering expanding the flood insurance mandate to beyond the 100-year floodplains. Because that risk cutoff, the 1% risk cutoff, is pretty artificial, and homes outside are also exposed to quite substantial levels of risk. And I've also mentioned the incentive to take adaptation measures. So it's also important for flood insurance to price in these risk reduction measures to encourage people to undertake them. So these are things like getting a discount when uh, you have undertaken certain flood proofing measures. Um, so recently we do see some promising steps taken by different federal agencies that I think uh, are in the right direction. Uh, for example, FEMA has come out with risk rating 2.0, which aims to provide more accurate risk-based pricing to the insurance. Uh, and the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is the main regulator of the GSEs, they have issued a request for input on climate and disaster risk uh, in April, I believe, uh, which reflects sort of a serious attention by them to this issue. So I think it would be very interesting to see where these efforts take us eventually, and they could even be future research topics. Sure, yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it, sure. Fantastic. Oh, Penny, thank you so much for, for explaining all of that so clearly and for kind of grounding us in, in the work that you're doing as you get started in your time at RFF. I'm going to throw in an a unexpected question here, but so Great. what do you hope to work on as you start working at RFF, sort of building on what you've been doing in the past and then, um, you know, other issues that you've been talking about with, with colleagues on staff? Are there things that you're particularly excited about tackling in your ongoing research career? Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm gonna continue uh, this line of work uh, in general, just thinking more about uh, how do we handle risk, especially as climate change is increasing these risk. And I am already starting to think uh, collaboration with uh, RFF colleagues, looking at you know climate impacts on businesses um, and how they're able to handle that risk. And so that is like. Um, one area that I'm hoping to move into. Great. Okay. Well, Penny, thank you again for joining me on Resources Radio. It's great to have a chance to hear more about your background and your research and share that with our with our listening audience. So we have reached the time for our closing feature, Top of the Stack. And I wondered if I could ask you to sort of recommend um, other good content for our listeners that uh, either has been, you know, on the top of your stack for a while or something new that's that's crossed your path? Yeah, so um, I was checking out 
the long list of this year's Booker Prize. And I found out that Richard Powers is coming out with a new book, uh, and it's called Bewilderment. Um, so I read his last book, The Understory, uh, which is about the love of trees and several people's life journey to fight against deforestation. And I just find his writing so incredibly beautiful, um, especially when he writes about nature. And this new book follows uh, a father who's an astrobiologist and his son who's a troubled kid. Uh, but the son also loves animals and nature. So it seems like there's a lot of interwoven themes in this book. It's really imaginative. But on the other hand, nature is also like a large part of the themes. So I think it might be interesting uh, for the listeners of this podcast to check out. Great. All right. Well, thank you for that recommendation. And yeah, again, welcome to RFF. It's great to have you with us and look forward to hearing more uh, in the future. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.